the Roman Empire was a slave society. In fact, ancient Rome organized its life around one of history's most extensive and complex systems of slavery. Sprawling across 500 years and three continents, Rome trafficked in tens of millions of slaves. At the time Christianity was coming onto the scene, one in ten families in the Roman Empire owned slaves. And in the cities, the numbers were twice that. The cities are where most of the letters of Paul are written to. Slaves were everywhere. And that meant sex was as freely available as pornography is today. That's a, that's a comparison we need to make in our minds. Because you see, a slave does not own his body. And whether it's ancient Rome or the U.S. South... The sexual use of slaves is one of the most persistent cross-cultural features of slave systems. And so sexual exploitation was ingrained in the whole fabric of society when Christianity was coming into being. About 30 years before Jesus was born, the Roman poet Horace published his first work, The Satires. This exploration of the secrets of human happiness established Horace as one of the great poetic talents of the Augustan age. And in this celebrated book, we find these lines of poetry. Now, this is graphic. I'm going to give you the tamest translation I could find. If your loins are swollen and there's some home-born slave boy or girl around where you can quickly stick it, would you rather burst with tension? Not I. I like an easy lay. And in this book, he garnered his praise as the greatest poet of the Augustan Empire. You see, Christianity was born in a culture that in the words of one historian, slaves played something like the part that masturbation has played in most cultures. The slave system of the Roman Empire, I think, is equivalent to pornography today. And so when it comes to the prevailing views of, of the society in which Christianity was born, when it comes to the prevailing views with regard to sex in the early days of Christianity, I want to remind you of three pressure points that I've touched on throughout this series. The first pressure point was the sexual pressure for the freeborn man. Now, you've got to remember, this is not men outside of the church. This is in the church. This is the whole society. For the freeborn man, sex was a drive, a need like the need for food. It was a basic human drive, and society was organized to deliver sexual satisfaction to freeborn men cheaply and easily. If you were a slave, you had no rights and no business expecting rights. You were going to be exploited from an early age. That's the first pressure point. So try to imagine how countercultural it was for the great Christian bishop, John Chrysostom, to say, as he did in one of his sermons in the 4th century, it is wrong for a married man to have sex with prostitutes or slaves. Quoting, I am not unaware that, this most, that most of you think it is adultery only to violate a married woman. But I am telling you, it is wicked and licentious to have an affair even with a public 
whore, a slave girl, or any other woman without a husband. And then he says, I know this is illogical, but it's true. It was illogical. Everybody sitting there thought, what? The Christians sitting there thought, what? This was fundamental. Look, that was as illogical as it is for you and I to think that someone who is male attracted to another male should not have sex. It felt in their guts illogical. And so we must never underestimate the remarkable oddity of Christians insisting that sex belongs only and exclusively in marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman. This was so odd that even Christians, it felt illogical to them. This brings us to the second pressure point, the sexual pressure on slaves in the church. It was constant and unavoidable regardless of your gender or age. A slave had to satisfy the sexual demands of the freeborn males. This was an inconceivably brutal existence. The most chilling evidence of this reality. And I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you this because we have just got to Stop acting like such wimps. Listen listen to this. Archaeologists have discovered an iron slave collar, an iron collar, which was a typical means of preventing or punishing a slave from fleeing. This was discovered at Bula Regia in North Africa, still clasped around the neck of a skeleton. Inscribed with these words, I am a slutty whore, retain me, I have fled Bula Regia. One of the most learned Christians of the fourth century was Eusebius of Caesarea. He was the bishop of Caesarea Maritima, a great Bible scholar and a well-regarded historian of Christianity. He wrote the first surviving history of the church. One of the stories he tells is of a Christian slave woman, Potomiana. Potomiana was a slave. She was a Christian. She refused the sexual advances of her owner. And here's what Eusebius wrote about the price she paid. Endless the struggle that in defense of her chastity and virginity, which were beyond reproach, she maintained against lovers. Because her beauty of body and mind was in full flower. Endless her sufferings. Till after tortures too horrible to describe, she faced her death with noble courage. Slowly drop by drop, boiling pitch, was poured over different parts of her body, from her toes to the crown of her head. Such was the battle won by this girl. We have got to stop being wimps. We're being made fun of? Suck it up. Like countless early Christian martyrs, Potomiana died because she chose to be faithful unto death rather than renounce the faith. And her commitment to chastity was what got her turned into the government. The third pressure was felt by freeborn women. And to understand this issue, we need to imagine something that is completely outside of living memory. And that is, we need to imagine what it was like to live at a time when the average lifespan was far, far shorter than it is today. Did you know that here in the United States in the year 1900, the average life expectancy for those who survived the birth in the United States in 1900 was 47 years old? Did you know that? We live on the other side of something that historians are just now beginning to analyze, something called the Great Transition. 
Significant changes began to occur in the 17th century in parts of northern Europe that gradually transformed human life expectancy. It had to do with agricultural technology and transportation, resulting in better food production and better distribution. In the 18th century and then into the later 19th century, medical innovations, including vaccines and sanitation, began to take effect along with a much better distribution of wealth and with major advances in treating diseases and applying healthcare widely. And the result is that in Europe, overall, the life expectancy in 1800, the year 1800, was 33. In the year 2000, the average life expectancy in Europe was 80. Now, this is just beginning to be explored and analyzed. And, and historians are beginning to call this the great transition. And they're beginning to trace out a thousand ways that this has changed life. That this has changed us. Now imagine life in the high Roman Empire when Christianity was beginning. First of all, the infant mortality rate was 25%. You could guarantee that one quarter of all of your births would die. Your children would die as infants. Second, of those who survived infancy, the ranks thinned out drastically year by year. And for the survivors, the average life expectancy was in the mid-twenties. And this is a primary reason that women, the, the pressure on freeborn women was to marry as soon as they went through puberty because society needed you to birth babies. For a woman, the pressure of society when it came to sex was get married and bear children for the Roman Empire. And if you didn't, you were like a traitor. I mean, you were betraying your village. You were, you were threatening the survival of all of those people that you lived around. Women in the ancient world were not free to not marry. That's the third pressure. That the church was born into. One woman who resisted this pressure was Saint Agatha of Sicily. God called her to be single, to devote her life to prayer. As a result, when she refused a senator's many offers of marriage, he had her tortured, including, at least according to legend, Having her breasts cut off, she was 20 years old. We have to stop being wimps. Can you imagine saying to Agatha, but I was scared I would lose my friends. A few years later in a town about 50 miles away, there was a young woman named Lucy who was born to a very wealthy family. Like Agatha, she made a vow of chastity. A vow of celibacy. And then she gave her fortune away to the poor. The man who wanted to marry her denounced her to the governor as a Christian. She was brought to trial. He ordered Lucy to burn a sacrifice to the emperor's image. When Lucy refused, he sentenced her to forced prostitution. When she refused to participate, they burned her. We live in a time in which sex is considered, once again, a necessity. Ours is a little different. It, because of life expectancy changes, it's not a necessity for like um, population growth. But we still live in a society that, that talks about sex as a necessity, as a necessity for a happy, healthy human life. We're part of a church that tends to elevate marriage as the epitome of the happy life. I wonder if it's possible for us to imagine why any person would make the choices that Lucy, Agatha, or Potomiana made. Our foremothers embodied the possibility 
of a very different life from what the empire expected for women. They wanted to live as though it were really possible for our whole lives, including our bodies, to be for the Lord. And people noticed. Eusebius tells us that Potamiana's martyrdom was the catalyst for the conversion of Basilides, her executioner. Her complete devotion to the Lord, signified by her virginity, was a witness. One that God used to bring someone else to Christ. Radical faithfulness spoke powerfully in the early days of Christianity. And it must speak once again. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able... To be faithful in the way that Jesus Christ is faithful. And it is through this faithfulness that the Christian view of sex, the Christian story of sex, a far, far better story than the one our world tells. It is through this faithfulness, through our faithfulness to the Lord, that the better story of sex and God and human flourishing will go public in our world today. Christians have always acknowledged two routes for being sexually faithful. We've always had two paths for publicly declaring and displaying with our bodies that God is faithful. The first route is celibacy in singleness. The second route is faithfulness in marriage. In both conditions... Christians testify with their bodies to the power of God. Let's talk about these two ways of being, of bearing witness to God today. First of all, let's talk about the radical faithfulness of being a single Christian today. If you have a Bible, find 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse seven. Paul writes, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own, and if you write in your Bible, you should underline this, gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. Then look at verse eight. To the unmarried. Being unmarried is a gift. It's a gift from God. Singleness is not a curse. It is a gift from God. Look at verse 10. To the married. Being married is not a ball and chain. It's a gift. A gift from God. What's going on here is that Paul is describing marriage and singleness both as gifts, as callings. Being single is a vocation. Go back to the left a few pages and find Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is being asked about divorce. We've read this passage several times. At the end of it, he, he, you know, he's saying that he's speaking strongly against divorce. And, and the Jewish culture was a, basically a no-fault divorce culture. Um, the Jewish people viewed divorce very similar to the way we do here in America today. And Jesus was going hard against that. And he speaks against divorce very strongly. And the disciples in verse 10 say what many people in America today would say if I preach this really strong sermon against divorce. They say, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Like if divorce is such a, you know, a grievous thing for God, then maybe we shouldn't get married at all. And Jesus' response in verse 11 is this, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now think about how radical this is in the society I described earlier. Think about how radical this is to those slave women, to those freeborn women, and to those men. To remain single and chaste, whether you were male or female, can you begin to imagine how radical an act of declaring that was in that culture? Way more than we've ever imagined. This was massive. This was totally weird. This was like you are from another planet. You were, when, you, when you made this radical vow of chastity, celibacy and marriage, faith, celibacy and singleness, faithfulness and marriage, to remain, to remain like this, to be single and chaste, whether you were male or female, this was a radical act of declaring that God was your everything. So much so that death wasn't a barrier, that torture wasn't a barrier. So much so that you had no need of marriage and children to secure your place in society or your legacy after you died. God, and not the empire, was the meaning of life. Service in the kingdom of heaven and not family or country was the measure of a life well lived. Conversion through Jesus Christ, not getting married, not having a soulmate, not birthing babies. This was the way, conversion to Christ was the way to everlasting life. Holy virgins were a powerful testimony to who God is and what God can do. Did you notice in Matthew 19 verse 12, he said three types of eunuchs. Those who are born eunuchs, uh, there are people that are born, they'll never be able to be married because of certain things about the way they're born. Those who are made eunuchs by other people, this could be you live in a city, women, where there's just not enough Christian men. This could be you're a Christian woman at JMU where there's not enough men, period, much less Christian men. This is, those who are made eunuchs by other people, This this is the single who doesn't want to be single. Whose circumstances or whatever has made them single through no choice of their own, against their desires. And then there are those who make themselves eunuchs, those who make a, a, a freeborn choice to be single for, for a multitude of reasons. Jesus calls being single a calling to God's kingdom. Whichever route you got there. Now this is strange for us today for two reasons, I think. First of all, it's strange to us because we are filled with the stories of our society, the stories we analyzed in our second and third and fourth session, the stories of love and freedom and identity. And these stories assume that people have to have sex to be happy. You have to have sex to be fulfilled, to live a full and flourishing human life. The second reason this is a difficult thing for us to believe is because the the second reason the vocation of singleness can sound strange and threatening is because Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, doesn't believe this. We have reversed the early church's celebration of celibacy. Many churches act as though marriage represents the ideal Christian life, the fullest Christian life. I frequently hear Christians equate maturity with marriage. Sex is good, but sex is not everything. And being single is not a character deficiency. And so for those of you who are single, when you don't have sex, you are a witness to the dignity and the purpose of the body. You witness to the fact that being human is not about selfish pleasure. Being human is about glorifying God. Can you imagine a more prophetic witness in America today 
than a person who says, I am a whole person and I don't have sex. I am in the prime of life and I don't have sex. Can you imagine a more prophetic witness to a culture that says, when you're really happening, you have sex. When you're really mature, you have sex. When you're really good at relationships, you have sex. You don't have to have sex. And when you don't have sex as a single, you are witnessing to the fact that being human is not about selfish pleasure. It is about glorifying God. We witness to the fact that there is more to life than easy indulgence. We witness to the faithfulness of a God who empowers us to be faithful in singleness. You see, a vocation to celibacy is not just denial. It is not just about avoiding sex. The vocation of celibacy is a calling to something. Celibacy is much less about giving up and much more about opening up your life. If you're single, don't wait for life to start. Don't wait for kingdom work to start. There is kingdom work to be done. There are cars to be fixed. Hikes to go on, students to be taught, art to be made, friendships to cultivate. This is kingdom work. There is a big world full of people desperate for an embodied witness to Jesus Christ. And for all of us, instead of talking to people as if we expect them to get married, we should talk as if everybody's body matters and that everybody's body can be a sign of faithfulness to God. Instead of saying to our children, when you get married, we should say, if you get married... There are two ways a Christian can live for God. Married and single. I wonder how God is going to call you. Man, if you get to be single, guess what you'll get to do? Man, if you get to be married, guess what you'll get to do? Do you see how our kind of language is programming our children from a young age that if they don't get married, they are missing? We might instead say, if you get married, we've got to stop saying to single men and women, when are you going to settle down? Or seeing anybody special? Can you feel the weight behind that? It's just the baptized version of you got to have sex to be happy. It's just one step away from that. It's just one step back into a pagan view that marriage is required for maturity. Marriage is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. But we have gone wrong if we suppose that marriage is the norm for being human. And we've gone wrong as if we act as though we can't live meaningful lives if we don't have sex. We need to learn to say to singles, I am blessed by the way you live for God. Instead of, hey, can I set you up with somebody? As Christians, we have no imperative to become married as soon as we can or to prefer marriage over singleness as a more whole or wholesome situation. Do you know that the, that the, um, the statistics on singleness in America are going through the roof? And do you know that they are very, very um, different in the church? It is not because Christians get married more. That's part of it. But more the reason is that churches aren't safe places for singles. We have to stop believing and acting as if marriage is God's plan for every person in the church. We've just looked at two of the many passages in the New Testament where Jesus and Paul expressly challenged their culture's idolatry of marriage. Singles are not people in transition. Marrieds are not people who've arrived. Singles are not incomplete, and marrieds are not complete. Single women who buy houses aren't spinsters, and older singles aren't losers. They are men and women precious to God. And your preciousness is unconditional. There is nothing we can do. Nothing that can happen to us that can take away our status as free, image-bearing children of the Creator. So, if you are a single person, the central calling of your life is not to get married. It is to grow in your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and your neighbor. That is your calling. To grow in your affections for God and neighbor. That's what it all comes down to. And it's the same for married people. Go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. Once again, let's look at it. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one another. In verse 8, to the unmarried, that's a gift. Verse 10, to the married, that's a gift. Do you see that marriage is a calling? Now here's the kicker. Marriage is a calling. It is not a right. None of you have the right to get married. Marriage is not a right. We don't have a right to get married. It's a gift, a calling. And guess who decides who gets what gift? God does. Now this is hard for us. Because in America, since 1967, the Supreme Court has ruled on several occasions that a marriage is, quote, a basic civil right. It is an issue of freedom and equality. Do you remember the debates about um, gay marriage? were about civil rights. And so over the past half century, Christians in America have started thinking about marriage as a right. But it's not. Not for gay couples and not for straight couples. Marriage is not a civil right. It's a gift and a calling from God. And another thing, go back again to Matthew chapter 19. Let's look, go there again and see how it helps us think about marriage. Matthew chapter 19 in these verses, verses 1 to 12. We see that marriage, Jesus says, he says this stuff about, haven't you heard from the beginning, God joined them as male and female, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they'll be one flesh. Verse 6, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What we see here is that since marriage is a gift from God, it is not a private choice. Getting married is not your choice. It is not a private choice to enter into a union. It involves a call from God and a response from two people who promise to build with the help of divine grace a lifelong intimate and sacramental partnership of love and life. The call to marriage is a call to a particular way to serve God. And Jesus' response to his disciples in Matthew 19 clearly indicates that those who believe that they cannot fulfill the obligations that God places on the vocation of marriage, they should resist any pressure to marry. Another thing about marriage. One was that marriage is a calling, not a right. Two is that marriage is not a private choice. It is a response to God's call, a public response. Three, is that the family created by marriage is not the most important relationship in your life. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Luke chapter 14. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you see that Jesus refuses to be simply one more name in a list of loved ones? Now go one book to the left, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And when his family heard what Jesus was saying, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The evangelical church has made an idol out of family. And it's ruined out, sing, it's run out singles from the churches. And it's made a life of celibacy impossible for gay Christians. The Jewish people had made an idol out of family. 
And here we see Jesus taking a radical step for a first century Jew. He is redefining family in terms of a family based on loyalty to himself. In a culture in which ties of blood had become everything, Jesus said there is a set of relationships that are more important, more basic, more fundamental, and they are not based on blood ties. They are based on obedience to the faith. Go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Do you see how he just scrambled up the Jewish idolatry of blood ties? And from that hour, the disciple did what? He took a woman he wasn't related to that he had no blood responsibility for. He took her into his home. Now Paul picks up on this and his letters are filled. (laughs) They are filled with references to the church as the household. And the fellow churchmen as his brothers. In the Old Testament, the structure of Israel was family-centered. The family was the most important, the most basic unit of society. And there were reasons for this. But in the New Testament, things shift. The family is still important, but the church is the most important, the most basic unit of society, the most important set of relationships. We just looked at three instances where Jesus is surprising his followers with this shift. Now, this in no way jeopardizes the fact that God still has a very important role for the biological family, but it means you should have more than people you're related to at your house for dinner on Christmas and Thanksgiving and on the weekend. God sets the lonely in families is what it says in Psalms. God sets gay people in the church. God sets gender dysphoria people in the church. God sets the divorced in the church. Why? So that they can be shamed and embarrassed at all the marriage weekends and all the family support groups? No. Because on the cross, Jesus looked at a single woman who had lost her husband apparently and was losing her eldest son and then said to another man, your mom, and he takes her into his home. So who have you taken into your home that you're not related to? We have to remember family is no longer central. The church is central. The family is not God's most important institution on earth. The family is not the social agent that most significantly shapes and forms the character of Christians. The family is not the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for the world. The church is God's most important institution on earth. The church is the social agent that most significantly shapes and forms the character of Christians. And the church is the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for a waiting and desperate world. The local church is the transforming power at the center of life. It is the only place on earth where word, sacrament, and community comes together. God teaches us in the church that the waters of baptism are thicker than the blood of relatives. Now let's circle back to the vocation of singleness in light of everything we've now seen about marriage and the family. If you're single and if you are lonely and longing for human relationships, then absolutely nothing is wrong with your desire for intimacy. God is not capricious. He doesn't want for you to be lonely He doesn't delight in broken hearts. Our society is telling you the solution to loneliness is sex. The church has been telling you the solution to loneliness is a Christian marriage. They're both wrong. And God doesn't delight in broken hearts. It is okay to long for human companionship. Romantic relationships are not the answer to loneliness. 
Not as a single and not in marriage. Don't believe that marriages are not lonely places. If you are single, you need to know the danger of loneliness is just as prevalent in a marriage as it is in singleness. Because the answer to loneliness in the Bible is never, ever sex. It is always and only friendship. Friendship. For years we've believed and taught that marriage is God's approved way of making us complete. But it is not. In the Bible, loneliness is consistently addressed through fellowship fellowship and friendship. It is hard for a husband and a wife to become friends. It is. Our society proves it. (laughs) How many marriages have you seen start out in joy and end up in isolation? Don't believe the lie if you're single that a marriage will solve this. Think of the many places in the New Testament where intimate fellowship is envisioned, like 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, or fame, Paul's famous love poem, 1 Corinthians 13. We always read it at marriage. At weddings, but we need to read it all the time. Jesus' farewell discourse in John chapter 13 to 16. Marriage doesn't come up in any of those passages. We can find real answers to our loneliness apart from marriage. Spiritual friendship in the church. That's the answer. We don't need to marry to overcome loneliness because our true family is the church. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, strangers can become family. Families. You're going to have to step up to the plate. You're going to have to open up to make this a reality. Marriage might even hinder some of us in our life together in the church family. When I went to my dad and I asked him, I said, Dad, I think I want to marry Janelle. How do I know it's God's will? My dad said to me, can you serve God better? That's the key question. That's what marriage is a vocation. It is a way of serving God. Singleness is a vocation. It is a way of serving God. And singles, if you're dating somebody who's not a Christian, can you serve God better with them? No, you cannot. We need to be the kind of church where singles can experience this reality. We need to be the kind of church where if you're single, we are a safe and healthy place. Where you do not feel like a second-class citizen. Where your vocation and your calling is taken seriously and admired and honored and given dignity. And all of us, married people and single people, we all need to raise the children of our churches to have a deep sense that God has a calling for them. It may be marriage, it may be singleness, it might be marriage for a while. And then singleness for a much longer period of time. And may we be the kind of church that no matter the calling, loneliness is met with deep friendship. Because when we look at Scripture, we see the waters of baptism are thicker than the blood of relatives. And this has to be played out in a a ton of ways. We have to rediscover how to buy houses without being married to the people we're buying houses with. Singles, you need to get out of renting and apartment furniture. And you need to set up house with real furniture, with real schedules, so that you can have people over and you can host them for meals and you can get on with kingdom work. And so as we come to the end of this series, let's remember the early church. Let's remember our foremothers and our forefathers. Let's remember the society in which Christianity was born and stop complaining about where we are as if it's hard. It's just hard because we're such wimps. And let's ask God for the grace to hear his call once again, whether we're single or married, let us hear God's call once again to chastity. What is chastity? It is the will of God for teenagers, for men and for women who are married. 
and for those of us who are attracted to members of the same sex, and for those of us who feel deeply out of place in our bodies, and for those of us who want to be married and are not, and for those of us who are happily not married, and for those of us who wish we were another gender, we are all called to the hard, high, and ultimately infinitely valuable calling and challenge of chastity. And chastity means far more than self-control, far more than the disciplined control of your appetites. If that was all it meant, then there would be no need or place for chastity in heaven when we no longer feel the pull of sinful appetites. The call to chastity means that all of us, gay and straight, single and married, teenagers, college students, and widowers, all of us are called to offer our sexual life back to God. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Chastity means not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may prove, you may display, you may manifest what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect. And of course this means discipline and control. All of us must restrain our sexual impulses. Impulses which, if given free reign, would often satisfy themselves outside of God's boundaries. You don't have to enter into a sexual relationship. You can, either by choice or by necessity, bypass it. And you can seek to devote your body directly to God as members of Christ's bride, the church. And if you do give yourself sexually then it must be done in accord with God's pattern established in creation. This is what we've seen all along. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from porneia. What's porneia? All sex outside of marriage. And now let's wrap all of this up with the words of Jesus that have been guiding me for the whole series. I want to now share them with you. Matthew chapter 11. This is what I've been thinking of week in and week out. As I've prayed for us, as I've prepared, as I've spoken with you. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What does Jesus offer to teenagers who want to have sex? To the gay Christian? Who knows that he will never have sex if he's going to be faithful to God. What does Jesus offer to the person who's been divorced or widowed? What does Jesus offer to the lonely husband or lonely wife? He offers a yoke. Now that's interesting. Because a yoke is a work instrument. Frederick Dale Bruner in his wonderful commentary on Matthew points out how striking it is that when Jesus reaches out to tired and weary people, he doesn't say, here's a mattress, lie down. He doesn't say, take a vacation. And to the same-sex attracted person, he wasn't say, I know this is difficult, you can get married. In Bruner's words, Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities or any burden. 
Bruner again comments, a yoke is not a sitting instrument. It's a walking instrument. Jesus doesn't say, say you're tired. Here's a chair. Jesus says, take my yoke, my work instrument, and that's how you're going to learn from me. We learn from Jesus along the way. How? Through obedience. Obedience to him. Obedience to the hard, high, holy calling of chastity. Life lived without Jesus. Life lived in disobedience to him. Life lived apart from his way is in the long run an intolerable burden. That's why the Christian way is a better story. It really is. We may in the short term find shortcuts and quick fixes, seeming solutions to our problems that make life easier and happier and more fulfilling, but only Jesus' yoke will bring rest. And here's why. Because a yoke is not something you carry on your own. The picture is of a pair of oxen and the yoke is a double yoke that would bind two oxen together. And maybe the image here is a young, unbroken oxen that's paired up with a seasoned, mature ox. And the mature ox would carry most of the load. And together they do the work. And the young animal would be broken and guided and learn from the older one as together they walk side by side. Here is what Jesus is saying. Become his yoke mate. You're longing to be married Come into the yoke with Jesus. You're longing for people of the same gender. Come into the yoke with Jesus. You're longing to be a different gender than your body is. Come into the yoke with Jesus. You're longing to get out of your marriage. Come into the yoke with Jesus. You're longing to be married again. Become my yoke mate, he says. And learn how to pull that load. That, that incredibly lonely load. That incredibly terrifying load. And watch Jesus. Watch him how he does it. Jesus is there next to you. Carrying most of the yoke's burden. Bearing it. Gently, humbly teaching you. Giving you rest. Remember that image as we move forward with our lives. Life without Jesus. Or life out of step with Jesus. Will always become a crushing burden. If you choose another story, it will not be better. Life in step with Jesus requires taking his yoke, being disciplined to his will, and it will bring rest. Because he will bear your burdens with you.